Hey everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls. I think this machine just called me an asshole. Welcome to another Eerie Earfuls bonus episode. I'm Justin. And I'm Brandon. That's right, uh, another bonus episode. Today, I want to talk about Stephen King. Brandon, what's your experience with Stephen King? Um, I don't know. Uh, well, <laughs> I... Uh, I didn't know it was going to be put on a spot like this. Uh, 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 what is this, a podcast? Uh, uh, no. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, obviously, as a fan of horror, I like Stephen King. I've read many of his books. Um, he holds a special place in my heart because he has a, you know, very deft hand when it comes to characterization and, you know, horror and pacing and all kinds of stuff um he can make things work that i don't think anybody else can and that's why it's so difficult to make adaptations of said work because sometimes it's just like so crazy you had to be there man in the text like it's (laughs) it's 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 almost impossible some of them to adapt yeah, I know that we, uh, I remember talking about this a little bit whenever we talked about something wicked this way comes and needful things because he always goes really big on his mm-hmm. endings. So there's a common thing with horror movies in general. People talk about basically horror movies never end as scary as they are initially. Uh, like there's all this great buildup and atmosphere and tension and stuff. And then when you get to the actual third act, when stuff starts happening, it loses a lot of that fear and stuff because the characters become more proactive and start fighting back, trying to survive doing stuff. Right. And therefore it loses the lack of power that gives horror its horrifying feeling. And that's kind of kind of similar to, I think, reading a Stephen King novel. He's mm-hmm. really good at setup. He's really good at characterization, making people feel real, making these worlds. And he holds all that shit in his head. People talk about how all of his books take place in roughly the same places. Like a lot of them take place in Castle Rock. A lot of them take place in Derry. They're all in like Castle County and other little clustered close towns in Maine. So he's really good at creating like these whole communities that with populated with real people. And he's coming up with these super creative ideas and like building them and building them and building them. And then when it finally gets to the ending, he's built it up so much that I don't think that there is a way for any single human to resolve it in a way that's satisfying. Yeah. Like I think that his, his reach exceeds like almost anyone's grasp to the point where you're like, how do you come back from this? You don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there are a few, in my opinion, where the ending feels right uh, Mm -hmm. compared to the journey that you've been on. Um, For me, I personally like the ending of It, the book, minus the weird uh, child orgy. Um, Yeah, 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 for sure. uh, the actual ending, you know, where like uh, I think it's very similar to the miniseries where they're like. I guess on the hold bike. on, really quick. Spoilers for the book. It just oh, okay. in case yeah, someone sure. cares. Uh, spoiler uh, alert! We're probably. I'm just giving gonna... people a chance. To yes, step ahead yes. If they're like, oh no no no, I don't want to hear. Spoiler alert! Probably everything that we talk about today is going to be spoiled. So if yeah, you, that's true. If you hear something mentioned that you don't want spoiled, you better skip ahead. 30 seconds or something. I don't know. Or maybe don't listen to the episode. Maybe watch all of the stuff and then <laughs> watch come back. and read 
all yes. of Stephen King, then and come then come to that. this episode <laughs> when you're a true fan. So, but anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I thought that the, I think the ending of the book is very similar to the miniseries where uh, it's what's his face, the main kid with the stutter and Bill. his wife, uh, and he's trying to get her to like engage and come back, and so they're riding the bike together, uh, and she starts to like kind of come alive the more they're writing you know she's writing like on the little basket thingy and i think that's a really nice hopeful i don't know i thought it was really cool because it was like a marriage of like of the childhood and the adult and then bringing them together in in a kind of childlike you know appreciation in adulthood and and it was like bringing together all of the themes of the whole fucking book you know in like one little ending scene and so i was like that one was a good one. And then the other one was um, 11-22-63. Like you've said before, it's technically a book like shouldn't work as well as it does, but it does because at the end, like, you know, he like messes up or he like fixes, you know, time or he ends but, up stopping the assassination and that ruins everything. And then he like, but if I go back, then all of that stuff with my lovely lady didn't happen. And he ultimately chooses, you know, to like save the world and reset everything. But then... He like, you know, there's like that really touching uh, reunion where he actually goes to Texas and he's like, I, I know we've pr- you probably don't remember me and we've never met. But, you know, and they they kind of have like a little conversation. They have a dance. It's very, very sweet and wonderful. What I noticed you're catching on is you're catching on the sort of epilogue of both books. Like oh, Bill you mean like the actual like big final yeah the actual action. conclusion of the story like the thing that the book is about yeah, not so much that, like the you mean like the big boss battle in it that is transdimensional and doesn't make sense <laughs> yeah that's what I'm talking about though like the oh, okay. like how how do you defeat the the personification of childhood fear and that's the thing that people hated in both movies <laughs> like I was saying those ideas get so big because Pennywise starts as clowns are creepy everyone kind of has been afraid of clowns forever so i will make clowns the personification of fear and then eventually we learn no it's not just that pennywise is the personification of fear he's actually an interdimensional creature alien that crash landed onto earth and is actually something sort of akin to like a cthulhu-esque deity from space and also, he's at war with at least one of the Dark Tower gods, Great Atuin, the uh-huh. the turtle, Ma- Ma- Maturin, Maturin. Atuin is the Discworld uh, turtle. <laughs> oh, yeah. Got to keep my flying space turtles uh, straight. Right. Uh, but Maturin is who they, uh, who he's like in constant battle with. And the like actual defeat of Pennywise is everyone like joining hands and like Care Bear staring. Pennywise with their brains and hearts. Mm-hmm. They all like join hands and like psychically link together. And then the power of friendship defeats him. And both in the past and in the, in the present. I I remember I didn't actually read the book physically. I listened to the audiobook, but I actually didn't mind that. Obviously when I was going through it, I was like, this is weird, but also the whole book was weird. Like yeah. the more they unwrap the mystery of the being, the weirder it gets. And also it doesn't help that Stephen King is not really a plotter. He's more of a pantser. And so he's like, this happened and that's happened. And just says, a, a fucking giant turtle, you know, like whatever, like he's, you can't even, you can't even make the joke that like, it's because he's high, 
because 112263 has kind of the same style of ending. The whole book is like this. The whole book is mostly this very slow romance of like this guy meeting this small town, Texas school marm and like falling in love with her. And then also sometimes tries to kill Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. And then the actual like finale of the book, not the actual climax of, of stopping Lee Harvey Oswald. I thought that all worked really well. Like the concept of time correcting itself by recognizing Uh him as like an anomaly. I like that. But specifically, it's after he kills him and returns to the present. And it's this like insane dystopian future with like (laughs) aliens and some shit and like monsters. And And Maine has been Maine has been annexed by Canada. (laughs) They're not even in the U.S. anymore. They're in Canada. And oh, my God, that is the kind of thing. That's where people say like that his endings suck because like, you can also that because it gets so ridiculous to the point where you're like, I don't like this. But then you get pulled back from it because he decides, you know, to go back one more time to reset it mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that everything goes back to normal, you know, but he also like goes to this little secluded place and he writes everything down uh, mm-hmm. so that he can have like this whole, you know, memory of this whole experience, and yada, yada, yada. I really liked that. And apparently that uh, was facilitated by Joe Hill, his son. Yeah. Um, because he was having issues with the ending. So, uh, some of that dystopian stuff uh, even was facilitated by him. And I was like, I actually really liked it because I didn't expect it. And I was like, wow, this is this is crazy. Like, just go back, put it back to normal. And then, <laughs> you know, when when they finally do, I don't know. I like I just really enjoyed it. But I could understand why in book form it worked because there were so many things, you know, you you get to some other parts and you're like, what is happening right now? Like, why do I care? But also. Why do I love this? Like the whole thing where he's like teaching the school play and he ends up doing Of Mice and Men and he gets the kid to do the performance and like everybody starts crying. And I was, I remember being like, this is still that book, right? Like we're still trying to <laughs> we're, not kill We're trying Kennedy, to save Kennedy still, right? <laughs> we're affecting kids along the way and they do like a dance. And oh my God, I loved all that stuff though. But yeah, like, but what, what I'm saying is like people tend to not like his endings because it's like we have thus far enjoyed a very romantic sweet story about a guy falling in love with a texas school marm who also happens to be there to save john f kennedy so then suddenly it's apocalypse weird (laughs) monsters crazy shit it's pennywise we're a bunch of kids trying to stop a clown and then we're also adults trying to stop that same clown because we didn't quite do it as kids but then also it turns out he's an interdimensional deity and we have to use our hearts and friendship to stop him. It's uh, Under the Dome, which I guess spoilers for Under the Dome. Uh, the uh, <laughs> Everyone's trying to figure out where the hell this dome came from, but it kind of doesn't matter at a certain point because it's more about the town and it's very needful things and like the destruction of this small town eating itself. But then ultimately we do learn the source of the dome and it's aliens. And it's specifically like a little kid alien that's doing the alien version of magnifying glass burning an anthill. But I love that because that's it's like the Twilight Zone, but if you extrapolated it into like fifteen hundred pages, right? Yeah, because that's a very Twilight Zone ending. Like I think the Twilight Zone endings work for people because it's a short trip to oh, get yeah, to that yeah. twist. So when they get to the twist, they're like, "Oh shit!" But after uh-huh. like fifteen hundred pages, someone they're like, "What the fuck, fuck is you? this?" Yeah. <laughs> Which is why it chapter two has has so many jokes about like, oh, I love your book. Hate the ending. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so we're here today 
wild digression about Stephen King's books aside, we're here to talk about our personal top five Stephen King adaptations. So quick notes, uh, this isn't an objective best of King movies, uh, however that would be measured. This is just our personal favorites. And as Mm -hmm. you may have already picked up, there are probably going to be spoilers. So if, like Brandon mentioned, if you happen to hear us mention a title that you haven't seen and you don't want any spoilers, skip ahead until you hear us talking about something else. We're going to start at five, work our way down. And uh, Brandon, why don't you go ahead and go first? Okay. Well, my number five is Carrie from 1976. Nice one. Do you have that on your list? Nope. Oh, okay. My list. I'm going to warn you up top. My list is kind of fucking wild. Like, (laughs) I made some bold swings. Uh, Number five of my top five Stephen King adaptations, I tried to pick not only like, you know, some of my favorite stuff, but also stuff where I had read the source material as well as had seen the adaptation. This is one of those instances where I have not read the source material, but I had to include it because the movie, the 1976 movie directed by Brian De Palma, and it's got Sissy Spacek as Carrie. Really good movie. We've talked about it before when we did our Frankenstein and Carrie episode. Uh, From what I know of the source material, I haven't read the original book, but it stays pretty close. And I think it does a really good job, even though it's mostly adapted by men. I think it does a a really good job of like portraying this girl's story. And you really do feel for her and her struggles. And like, so at the end, when all those, you know, people are dying and it is on the one hand, horrifying because you're like, oh, people are dying. But on the other hand, you don't exactly feel bad because you're like, well, it shouldn't have been dicks. <laughs> like, yeah, just saying. Uh, and also, you know, a lot of the cinematography is wonderful and the performances are great. So, yeah, that's that's my number five. That's such a good movie, dude. Like I, I can speak to because I have read Carrie and relatively recently. The The reason that Carrie is kind of easy to adapt is that the story is really straightforward. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's it's so straightforward. Mm-hmm. Carrie is sort of a unique instance because it is technically a novel, but specifically Carrie's story is very short and it's interspersed with other things like right. audio recordings of like court cases. Like there's a frequent trial recording that, that gets brought back up multiple times throughout the novel and it's from the point of view of the girl that lets Tommy go on the date with Carrie. I can't remember her name. Um, She is brought before like a a deposition, just trying to get to the bottom of what happened. And so they're like, they'll interview her and they are like asking her questions about her home life and her interactions with the other students. And then there's also, uh, it will cut to like uh, newspaper segments that will like describe, for example, when Carrie walked through the downtown area and caused like gas stations to blow up and cars to flip over. Like there'll be, an article about that. There's an article yeah. that was from some like popular housing magazine, like good housekeeping or something, but it's specifically about how this town basically dries up after, after what happens with Carrie, everyone's too freaked out to stay. Interesting. Um, none of that stuff's in the movie, but you know, but yeah, the, Carrie's great. My number five. So I have my actual pick and then I have the movie that I was going to pick, but oh, decided it was fair. cheating. I know. Yeah. I was like, this isn't <laughs> fair. I only picked five. You can't put in more. So my what I was going to pick initially was Storm of the Century because I fucking love that movie uh, and like Andre Linoge, but it's not an adaptation. It, it was an original screenplay King wrote. So I was like, that feels like cheating. 
So instead, my number five is The Dead Zone from 1983, with, directed uh, by David Cronenberg. Uh, nice. Is that on your list? No. I almost put it on there. It was one that I considered, and I was like, I think it's been too long since I've seen that one. It's so um, good. But I have read the book, and I have seen, I'm pretty sure I've seen the movie. I need to go back and rewatch it. But yeah, I remember reading the book and being like, this is great. It's it's good. It's one of the few times that I've seen Christopher Walken give like a straight performance in something because everything I've seen him in has been, you know, the like, what? I'm Christopher Walken. I kept the watch <laughs> in my ass and yeah. like cowbell and whatever. So this is one of the few times I've seen him like give just a full on straight performance. And it's so good. My One of my favorite scenes. And I don't know why. It's just something about the way he delivers. This is so powerful. It's when he's trying to warn a family about this like some kids are going to go ice skating and he's been having visions of them drowning in the ice and he's trying to warn them so that it doesn't happen and he like gets mad and he smashes his cane against something and shatters some like tchotchke or something that they have on a shelf and he's like the ice is gonna break and just (laughs) something about that line is so powerful that i was like oh it just gives me goosebumps every time i see that scene and what a bold story also because it's kind of like three different stories in mm-hmm. one because you've got the the johnny smith story about the accident and him going into the coma and coming back and having these psychic visions and then you have the serial killer story where he pairs up with george bannerman to try to catch whoever the i forgot what what, what pithy name they gave the serial killer and then there's the political plot that's the latter part of the book that i kind of think gets forgotten but is like whoo is that a bold statement the hero of the novel decides assassination of a political candidate to save the mm-hmm. world is is the correct action. And like, uh, he's I mean, he's right. Like, he's literally trying to stop the apocalypse that this guy will bring about. Yeah. But oh, goddamn, yeah. if if that's not a bold uh, move to be like, my hero is going to try to assassinate a political figure. But the movie handles it so perfectly with the way that. Um, He's like trying to shoot Greg Stilson with a rifle and he misses, he fails, and he ultimately gets shot by the Secret Service and dies. But in the meantime, Greg Stilson had grabbed a baby and literally used a baby as cover and ruined his political career. A very faithful adaptation because that is how how the book ends. And it's it's really good. It's really well done because I also wondered as it was happening, I was like, how the fuck is this going to end? He can't just kill the guy and then be like, you know, whatever, because then he kind of becomes a martyr, you know, like he doesn't have a way to mm-hmm. to defend his actions or whatever. Yep. And so, yeah. So the way he handled it was great. OK, so, yeah. What's your number four? Um, My number four pick is actually misery. Oh, nice. <laughs> is that on your list? I'm, no, no, it's not on my list. OK, yes. Misery, uh, 1990 film directed by Rob Reiner. And starring Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes and James Kahn, James Kahn from The Godfather as uh, Paul Sheldon. Because he's fucking James Kahn from The Godfather, <laughs> yeah. I also remember him from Elf, obviously. He played the dad yeah. in Elf. And there was some scene where John Favreau was trying to get him to do something. Oh, it was like a shouting scene. He was trying to yell at Buddy. And he was like, I don't know if I want to be, you know, like, do this because he was known as being difficult and he was like i don't want to be known for being difficult i want to do this nice little movie or whatever 
and uh, John Favreau's whole motivation was, but you're James fucking Khan or whatever. Like you're <laughs> dude from Godfather. And then he did one take after that. And that was the take they put in the movie. The one where yep. he's like, buddy, you're having to go home, you know, whatever. So yeah, uh, you got Kathy Bates losing her cock a duty mind. And then you've got, <laughs> you know, Paul Sheldon getting uh, hobbled. And it's a Rob Reiner movie. And you're talking about Rob Reiner who did like, when Harry met Sally, like <laughs> romantic comedies or stand by me, you know, something like that. I will um, never think of Rob Reiner as a director because in my head, he will always be meathead from all in the family. It's crazy <laughs> to me that he went on to be like a director with like real movies. Yeah. Really prolific directing career. Like a lot of standout movies. Like I said, when Harry met Sally, uh, stand by me, which is another Stephen King adaptation. Misery. Gosh, just all kinds of stuff. And he was married to Penny Marshall, who, uh, you know, Penny Marshall's, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, shit. Oh, no. Something Marshall, the guy that created Gary Happy Marshall? Days. Yes. Gary Marshall's sister. Uh, one of either, I think, Laverne on Laverne and Shirley. He was married. Oh, to her holy crap. I had no idea. Yeah, right. Was, uh, Peggy, I only know yeah. her from, uh, I only Peggy know her Marshall, from Hocus Pocus. <laughs> Oh, I know. Yeah. Get your clock paws and get out of here. (laughs) Yeah. She was Laverne. I think Laverne from Laverne and Shirley. And she was also, she was also, she did a bunch of like movies, you know, she was a big director after that too. Anyway. Yes. Misery. Fantastic adaptation. um, Cause I've read the book and seen the movie and it's not only is it a really good adaptation true to it, but it also like elevates it and it makes it just a really fun movie to sit through. And You've got James Caan and Kathy Bates, two powerhouse people going bonkers against each other. It's it's amazing. <laughs> Kathy Bates is going a thousand percent like Jesus Christ. She committed to that role. It's fantastic. <laughs> What's funny about that movie is like everyone remembers it for being really brutal and it is, but it's not half as brutal as the book because the book oh, was yeah. fucking horrifying. It's, There's a like the hobbling scene in particular in the movie. The scene plays out the same where she's like giving him this speech about how whenever like slaves would run away, they would hobble Mm -hmm. them so that they couldn't run away anymore. And as she does that, she's like setting down this block and then she like swings a croquet mallet and breaks his ankle. Both of them, I think, breaks both of his ankles. Yes. In the book, she takes an axe and just cuts his foot completely the fuck off. Cuts one foot off and is like, yep, I'm taking the foot. Now you can't run. Yeah. She's like, how are you going to run now? And later on, when uh, he's like writing something and she's he wasn't writing fast enough. Yeah. She like drugs him and cuts off one of his fingers and serves it on a cake to him. Yep. She cuts off his thumb because he wasn't typing fast enough. He was supposed to write faster. It's crazy. And it's all still wrapped in the same, you know, cock a duty package. Like she just Mm -hmm. she doesn't like swearing. And, (laughs) you know, honestly, that is such a beautiful critique of like America. Oh, for real. Not to like bring this down with real world gross politics, but like the that school in Tennessee, I think, that banned Mouse, the graphic oh, novel yeah. about the Holocaust, mm-hmm. written by a survivor of the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I saw a lot of criticisms online that was like, I'm fine with the Holocaust, but they better not say any swear words while they're talking about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, like God forbid we offend uh, the children with language. <laughs> Yeah, while we teach them about genocide, you know, like yeah, <laughs> the language. 
Uh, it's too much. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's my number four. My number four is um, a lot of these are newer than I expected. I didn't have a lot Aha. of older ones on here. Uh, Good. My number four is It Chapter One, uh, directed by Andy Muschietti from 2017. Specifically, It Chapter One, because to me, it works almost perfectly as a standalone story. Like that particular storyline just boiled down so beautifully into mm-hmm. its own story that it was perfectly adapted to like the, to the eighties setting, updating everything from being the book takes place in the fifties when the kids are kids and in the eighties when they're adults, because that was the contemporary time that King wrote it. And so when they made the movie, they just, bumped that up a few decades so it takes place as kids in the 80s and then in the 20 odd tens whenever the second part came out it's not perfect and that's why it's kind of low on my list because like as a horror movie it's fucking amazing like the scares are fantastic bill skarsgård is fucking killing it as pennywise mm-hmm. not just hamming it up like tim curry no disrespect to tim curry because i love his performance as pennywise but like bringing that extra edge of not just being funny, but being fucking terrifying and committing yeah. to, to, to the, the scares is so good. And there's like, there are so many additional things that were like brought in that weren't really covered in the old miniseries. Like one of the kids is chased by a headless kid. That's like yeah. carrying around an Easter basket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because in the book, there's a whole thing that Mike researches about a factory that blew up. I yep. think. And it kills a bunch of kids on Easter. Like they yeah. were on an Easter egg hunt and it kills a bunch That's of a fucking dark story because yeah. like, I mean, it's in, it is, I think in the movie too, there's a picture that they, where they show like a shot of a tree and there's like a kid's head mm-hmm. in the tree. And yep. that was something they talked about in the book was like for days after that explosion, they were just finding body parts of people everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, Bleh. <laughs> that's great. So dark. Oh, but it was executed very well in the movie. Mm-hmm. And also knew exactly the right things to carry into it and what things to sort of leave behind. Like, um, if I remember correctly, Mike, his fear was actually just the Godzilla monster Rodan. Oh, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. that's fine. But it's, I don't know, just something about that felt a little cornier compared to some of the sort of like real deep fears of like appearing as your dead dad or, oh, yeah. or, or like the headless child of a past tragedy. Or that the one that freaked me out was, I don't think it was in the book, but the creepy painting lady yes. that like comes out and like plays the flute or whatever. I was like, mm-hmm. but it was just such a good, yeah. I just thought it was really good because, you know, as an adult, you might see that and be like, Oh, it's art or whatever. But things always look creepier and more menacing when you're a kid, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just, to me, it's like the perfect encapsulation of what made that book scary. That my only real critiques with it, uh, I have two. Uh, honestly, I have one major critique, and it's one that everyone else critiqued as well when it came out. And that's, there's a massive change that they made in the movie from the book. And it's a pointless change that is legitimately atrocious to me even though i love the movie so much is mike is the keeper of history when everyone else leaves he's the one that stays behind and researches and he's the one who was already doing research ben's thing was specifically like being really good at understanding like architecture and stuff 
Yep. And like he, he built build the, the dam in the thingy. in the barrens that that like yep. flooded the barrens and they got in trouble for it. Yep. They kept Ben being good at dams, but also for some reason yes. gave him the history, the history thing. stuff. Yeah. And they gave Mike literally nothing yeah. in response. They gave him a cow killing gun. Mm-hmm. It's like a bolt gun or yeah, bolt gun. That's whatever, what it is. Yeah. They they give him a bolt gun, and that's what they replace all of that backstory and like family lineage with. And like his in the book, his dad or his grandpa, I can't remember which one it was, but it's either his dad or his grandpa that served in the military with Dick Halloran from The Shining. Like there's all this history and stuff to to his family living in Derry. And like there was this whole like King made a, a pseudo Ku Klux Klan group that like specifically is in the north that terrorize oh, yeah. people in the area. They just eliminate all of that and give it to Ben for no reason. Ben already has. I guess they gave it to him because Ben liked to read. And so yeah. he was in the library a lot. But it's not like they were researching in the library much. Like yeah. ugh, I just it was such a pointless change. And it left Mike, who is already an underserved character in the book with nothing and it just it was it's, it was a bad decision in an otherwise fantastic movie that was a bad decision and it did not get better in, in the second one <laughs> but yeah anyway that's my number four it chapter one i i do still love the movie it's just mm, it just sings when it's when it's hitting the cylinders it's just perfect yeah so you want to know what my number three is absolutely Okay, well, my number three is, I only have one newer movie on here. Most of mine are kind of older, I guess. I didn't realize that. But I must have done it uh, subconsciously because there were several movies that I was going to pick that I ended up not because I specifically, when I thought about picking them, was like, I bet that's on his radar as well. (laughs) So my number three movie is Children of the Corn, the first one. Um, from 1984, directed by Fritz Kirsch, and it's starring Peter Horton as Bert Stanton. Stephen King's really good at coming up with white people names that are just <laughs> real white, like just big Midwestern names. Bert Stanton. It's got a lot of vowels and consonants. Sorry, I feel like I just uh, a glass of whole milk just appeared in my hand when you said it. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and then you've got Linda Hamilton as Vicky Baxter, you know, before her Terminator days, I think. And then, of course, you've got the iconic John Franklin as Isaac Croner. He he makes appearances in uh, other because they turned it into like a series, I guess. But the first one is really the best one. I haven't read the short story. It's based on a short story by Stephen King. I don't remember where it, where it's included anyway. But it's I think it's an underrated adaptation because there are some moments in it that are just genuinely disturbing. The one that always comes to my mind is that scene where the kids just start killing all the adults in the diner. And it always every time catches me off guard. And I'm like, this is like disturbing. No one else thinks this is crazy because like it's normal Mm -hmm. to just be like "Eh, ask kids. And then to all of a sudden be like, fuck, you know, the innocent thing is now going to kill me. Like, ugh. it's been a while since I've rewatched it. But the things that always stand out to me are John Franklin as Isaac, obviously. And then just how menacing some of those kids can be under his direction doing what he wants them to do. And then he who walks behind the rose and all that stuff. 
I think it's a very strong but underrated adaptation. And so it's definitely got its hammy moments, John Franklin. Mm-hmm. So, but I think that's what makes it work. Like, I think if it were played straight, it would be crushingly dull. It's yeah. John Franklin getting to like do his best, like Baptist. I don't uh, really sermons. know who the director guy is, but he's not a guy that immediately pops up on my radar as somebody who makes like who has an indelible stamp on their films, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, there's I don't remember any specific things in this movie that made me go, wow, you know, filmmaking. Not like in Carrie, you know, with all the weird jump cuts and all the monochromatic shots and stuff. Um uh I don't remember as many things like that in Children of the Corn. The Arrow release is actually really interesting because I listened to the commentary track where they interview Fritz Kirsch about the movie, as, like, you know, as it plays. You guys know how commentary tracks work. And, like, apparently one of the things that was surprisingly difficult to do was the corn. The corn was dead when they were hmm. filming it. Like, it was harvest season. So they had to mm-hmm. go through and literally spray paint all the corn green <laughs> to, like, make it look fresh. And then whenever they were doing like driving through the cornfields, they couldn't just drive through the cornfields. I mean, they could, yeah. but they also had to like rig up almost like corn curtains that would fall across the windshield to make it yeah. work, to make the effect work correctly. You can also, when you, you know, cut down corn like that. I remember dad telling me about it uh, in his childhood and driving through dead cornfields um, mm-hmm. where, you know, like the stocks have been cut down or whatever. Some of those stocks, when they get cut down and they're dried or whatever, they can be so tough, they'll puncture your tires. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm surprised somebody didn't get hurt, like falling or popping tires running out there. Like, so they paid somebody to basically use their field to ruin their field because they set that field on fire at the end. Like they they full on yeah. burn that shit. So that guy was not getting any corn from that particular run. They, they just paid him basically to make a mockery of his corn field. But like it's I think that John Franklin's performance in particular makes it work. And it's it's funny because I didn't know until I was I think I didn't know until I was watching the Arrow Blu-ray that he's not a kid. He's not oh, actually yeah, a he's, child. He's in his like 20s. Yeah, he's a full adult, um, but he has a condition where he looks like younger, he has the yeah. same stature as a kid and he, it makes him appear younger than he is. Yeah. And he I think that like. Because he has that and because he's actually, you know, 20 something or in his 20s, it, it, it gives him a performance that I don't think a kid could give. Mm-hmm. Like that sort of demented Baptist preacher performance is so good that I don't know if they had tried to go with an actual 10 year old child. I don't know if they would have been able to pull that off as well. Yeah. Even the best kid actors, even the amazing kid actors, they're mm-hmm. still kids, you know. Yeah, yeah, you can kind of tell there's a performance difference between like the other kids in the movie who are actual kids and then his performance, which is, you know, not saying that there's a lot of kids that can't give nuanced performances is just more common for adults because you've been through more shit. So it's you've got more sources to pull on when you've been through what I've been through. (laughs) You got enough to go on. What's your number three? My number three is. 1408 by Mikhail uh, Hafström, uh, cool. starring John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. The setup for the movie is that John Cusack plays a writer, not really a journalist, but like a book writer. His bread and butter is basically investigating haunted locations and 
disproving them because uh, someone asks him later at some point in the movie like he gets confronted by an overly zealous fan he's like man i've never seen a haunting i wish that i could i've go into these always being like hey maybe this will be the time but i've just never had it happen and he goes into 1408 and uh it goes poorly uh that that is uh what is it samuel L. jackson says it's an evil fucking room <laughs> this is my favorite genre the what the fuck is happening genre Mm -hmm. i don't know how else to describe it the room starts playing with his perception like the radio will constantly kick on and start playing the we've only just begun front by the (laughs) was the carpenters i think i think so yeah he likes to evoke the use of the carpenters throughout his books and i think it's because from what I've noticed, I'm a fan of the Carpenters because I'm a white person. <laughs> and uh, what I've noticed is a lot of people, like especially when they were popular in the 70s, they were very popular adult contemporary artists. But they produced this very like flashy, polished sound, very close, intense harmonies. And they also had this like squeaky clean 70s Saccharine. kid image to boot. Yeah. And so all of that together, people would be like, Ugh, I hate the Carpenters. But now, after Karen Carpenter's death and uh, more awareness around like eating disorders and stuff, people have gone back and reevaluated a lot of their catalog of music. And it's really good, obviously. Like, it's fascinating because it's, it's a lot like Stephen King, where it'll be like this nice, polished song. And when you get to the end of it, you're like, oh, that's a nice song. But then when you start thinking back on some of the lyrics, you're like, there's some kind of fucking dark lyrics in there. like. Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's interesting that Stephen King picks up on that and he so it's it's referenced like in 1408 the movie um and it I think I remember it is referenced in Bag of Bones the book and like he he mm-hmm. does it a lot uh and I've noticed there's a weird I think there's a weird relationship with the carpenters and horror as well like people like to juxtapose the sound of them with horrible things cuz I'm pretty sure in The Strangers like the first scene of him yeah. like wandering around he's listening to the carpenters and then they just like <laughs> Kill him, you I think know? you're right. Yeah, I don't know what it is about people just love the juxtaposition of beautiful Karen Carpenter's voice, which is a wonderful contralto voice, against horrible death. <laughs> it's funny <laughs> anyway. uh, because 1408 has that constantly re- recur throughout the movie. Like whenever he starts like yelling at the room and like trying to fight back just to taunt him, the radio will come on and you'll hear, We've only just begun, <laughs> which is funny because. Uh, speaking of Stephen King, not an adaptation, but directly inspired by him, in the Mouth of Madness does the same thing. When the movie starts and uh, Samuel's dragged into the asylum, they start playing "We've Only Just Begun" over the loudspeakers, <laughs> and he he yells, "Oh God, not the Carpenters!" <laughs> uh, I know. Yeah, uh, it used to be a common thing to like. It was a money thing to bag on the Carpenters, be like, "Ha ha, cheap shots at them because they're lame." But yeah. I've gone through some of their stuff. Now, some of their stuff is kind of, I'm like, oh, this is too much for me. But there's a a number of songs that really caught me off guard. And I was like, I felt something in my cold, dead heart that I haven't (laughs) felt in quite a while. I just hope it's not a blockage. That was... (laughs) Yeah, 1408 is just, it's such a good movie. Like, like I said, I love the trippy movies where the movie basically is like, what is real? Mm-hmm. We don't even fucking know. I mean, the short story is very short. Um, and it's sort of funny how different John Cusack's character is in the movie from what the character is in the book. They still have the same base 
idea behind them. But John Cusack has played like a like a cool fucking writer with like a like a leather jacket and jeans and shit. And in the book, explicitly, he's like a flip flops and Hawaiian shirts kind of <laughs> guy. Like they make they make hay about his bright red Hawaiian shirt and flip flops as he just sort of like flops into the hotel. Like, yeah, I don't know. I'm here to look at your ho- your haunted room. Now, that sounds like it was inspired by me uh, before <laughs> I broke my leg. Yeah, I'd wear flip flops everywhere and be like, is this where we're going? I'm sitting. <laughs> Fun fact. If you're a writer and you like want to read Stephen King's book on writing, there's a section in the latter half of the book whenever he starts dishing out his actual writing advice where he goes through his first draft of 1408 and like talks about oh. what he liked, what he didn't like, the corrections and changes that he made. It's it's not the whole draft. I think it's like the first couple of pages, but it's That's really cool. fascinating yeah. to see the difference. I don't think I've ever seen any of his like working stuff. Uh, you know, obviously, always ever just read his finished product, never looked at his working notes, you know. Yeah, it's it's such a cool insight into the way he writes. So, yeah, uh, if you're interested, the book, the story is in the book. Everything's eventual, but the draft stuff is in on writing in the latter half. That's my number three, though. 1408. Oh, yes. So now it's time for my number two. I wonder if we have the same number two. Because I can't imagine this movie (laughs) not being on your list. Anyway, so my number two is the most recent movie that is on my list, and it's Gerald's Game from 2017. That one almost made my list, so it's not on my list, but it was was a damn close. Yeah, I figured. I was like, I feel like most of his list is going to be a lot of Mike Flanagan. (laughs) (laughs) But... Yeah, uh, so that's my number two is Gerald's Game 2017. Yes, it is directed by Mike Flanagan. It's starring Carla, uh, I want to say, Gugino as Jesse Burlingame, Bruce Greenwood as Gerald, the titular character. And then you've got Carl Struikian as the Moonlight Man. Uh, He is a pretty common character actor. He has some kind of affliction that causes him to be you know very tall and gangly so he's officially like seven feet tall but he's been in tons of stuff like he was the moonlight man uh and they didn't really use a lot of prosthetics to make his face that way that's just like how his face is it's very Mm -hmm. gone sunken and he's also played i think he's played lurch in like the adams yeah that's what i was gonna ask if he played lurch in the adams family and he was also known as the giant slash fireman in twin peaks so he's been in a lot of weird stuff <laughs> so anyway yeah, he's he's yes. such a cool actor i like him a lot he's very he cool seems very nice and I, I think he's very gentle giant kind of person um yeah it, he plays the moonlight man and uh i have read the book and also the movie and i actually this is one of those rare instances where when i walked away from the movie i actually thought it was better than the book and that's rare especially for a Stephen King book because they're so good and you've been on such a ride by the end of it that you're like mm-hmm. there's no way the movie could be as good. But in my opinion, Mike Flanagan is one of those people that just has a tap into Stephen King's sensibilities and he's able mm-hmm. to not only bring them correctly to the screen but also somehow improve them in a lot of ways and it was you know called a long time unfilmable because a lot of it you know takes place it's like hallucinations and it takes place in her head as she's freaking out about being locked in there with Mm -hmm. her dead husband and then like a stray dog wanders in 
and starts to eat him. Like, yep. but it's, you know, it's like all that whole mental struggle and hallucinations about the Moonlight Man. And then you finally figure out, spoiler alert, you finally figure out later that he's not a hallucination. It was really a guy f- fucking sneaking in and spying on her. That scene ah! in the movie, by the way, <laughs> the scene where she confronts him at the courthouse where he, he says, just like, starts laughing. Where he says, like, I think. it's you. And then he, like, yeah. just instantly breaks his chains like they were nothing is yeah. horrifying. Like, yeah. the fact that he was just basically there because he was like, well, you caught me. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Is like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So good. And you're absolutely <laughs> right. He, Flanagan has somehow, like, for example, it chapter one, I just talked about how fantastic it is. And it is. It's fantastic. But one of the things that's funny about both it movies, the, those that adaptation, is that they're both really dark and cynical almost. And with King, he'll go into some really dark places, but ultimately he believes that people are good. There's a reason that so many of Stephen King's stories end with like friendship and love conquering all, because it's genuinely deep down what he believes. He believes that we may go to some dark places, but that ultimately people will come together and we'll save ourselves and each other. And Flanagan is, I think, one of the only directors I've ever seen that really gets that on like a fundamental level. Because Gerald's Game is an incredibly dark movie, but it ends with such heart and hope. And Mm -hmm. like, it's not that the stuff necessarily always ends happily, but there's a warmth to it that yeah almost nobody else is able to get like there are varying degrees like the the shining by kubrick like is very cold uh, the ending is sort of very nihilistic oh kind of like the ending to the mist which i hate <laughs> i mean it makes sense i just was like fuck this movie fuck it all the way off so speaking of the mist my number two is the mist god damn it <laughs> son of a bitch I was like, I'm not putting that movie on my list because of the ending, because I remember watching it and getting to the ending and being like, I hate this. I hate this. And I know that's basically like the ending of the short story. Like, that's basically like how it ends. And I was like, I don't care. I still hate it. Like, it just. I haven't read the novella, but it is so good. It is one of the like of the genre of like disaster happens and people are huddled in like some structure together, like a gas station or a general store or something. It's just exemplary. And Frank Darabont did such a good job with adapting it. It's again, it's one of those things where it's very much about the town and they did such a good job of making everyone feel real and Mm -hmm. Honestly, it reminds me a lot of uh, Storm of the Century, just done with a higher budget. And, but like the ending, I'm not going to lie, is kind of one of the things that made me love it. Because when it happened, I was like, that is so sad. It's like a gut punch. Yeah, it's horrible. But there was something about it where I was just like, damn, that's perfect. I can't think of another way to end the movie that wouldn't feel like a cheat. You get to the point that the, the movie, in case anyone has not seen it and doesn't care about spoilers... Everyone's been trapped in a general store. They've been trapped in a general store for a while. And um, the there's a religious woman who is just steadily getting crazier and crazier and like whipping people into a frenzy and like ba- almost starting a cult or a religion of her yeah. own and like sacrificing people to these creatures that are in the mist. And uh, eventually they decide, I think the main character's name is Mike and Mike and uh, his son and a few other people decide to just make a break for it and try to 
they get to a car and they basically their plan is to just drive until they're out of the mist or until they run out of gas and they drive until they run out of gas. And as they're driving, that's one of my favorite parts of the movies when they're driving and like, it's the things that you don't see in the mist, but almost see like there's a scene where there's just this giant dinosaur looking thing, just stomping past them, like not even (laughs) seeing them. And it's this Lovecraftian monster and it's so cool. And then they run out of gas and like, yeah, what are they going to do? You know, Mm -hmm. like everyone has died so horribly. They decide that the only humane thing to do is to kill themselves. And so Mike elects to be the last one because he'll be the one eaten by these monsters. So he kills everyone else, including his son. And then when he gets out of like, he like the scene that the actor that plays Mike. Oh yeah. Cause I think they only had like two bullets. There were three of them, but they only had two bullets. So yep. they had to have one person that was actually going to have to sacrifice themselves. Yep. Yeah. And so he killed his friend wife. and his son. Oh, was it his, I don't think it's his wife. I may be wrong, but I don't think it's his wife. I think that she The died. lady in the passenger seat. Yeah. The, the woman that is also with him, he kills her and his son. And the, like the scene that plays out after that, where he like is like, pulling the empty trigger into his mouth, like trying for like willing there to be another bullet is so heartbreaking. And then he gets out of the car to die. Like he's, he's just like, well, this is it. You know, I'm going to give myself over to these creatures. And then the military comes through and burns away the mist and like having defeated the monsters. And it's, that's, that's the, I think that's the part that I hate so much because he like is, you know, doing the clicks and then he gets out. And he starts like screaming, like "Come at me" or whatever. He starts like making noise, you know, for mm-hmm. for them to come after him. And you think you hear this roaring approaching, and you think it's going to be a thing, and then you realize it's a giant Humvee, and there it's the military clearing the stuff. And yeah, I was. Like, I I can entirely Ooh. understand why that ending doesn't work for someone because it. I can understand it feeling cheap, like if like or just mean. Like yeah, I did. I didn't feel. Yeah, I definitely didn't feel like it was cheap. It definitely felt extraordinarily mean i was like these people have been through so much and i know that this is a possibility like that's it hurts so much that that sounds like it could happen in real life mm-hmm. it's just not my cup of tea like no, I, I, get it. I i would have preferred it not to happen that way so when it did i was like this movie whatever but it's also the type of thing that if i saw a movie that did that now i probably wouldn't like the movie I, it would probably mm-hmm. turn me off the same way you did because in 2007 uh the world was different and in 2022 having gone through three oh, yeah. years of pandemic yeah. and in 2007 we thought we had been through some shit with like 9-11 <laughs> yeah. and we were like yeah that's what it feels like to have your world taken away and now you're like I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, I I remember that uh, it was right after Trump was elected. uh, Cameron Hurley, she's a fantasy author. She's fantastic. You should read her stuff if you haven't. Um, But she was talking about how originally she was writing this trilogy and she had this really dark, bleak ending planned because the whole point of the series is the basic, it was, it was sort of a response to game of Thrones Mm -hmm. uh, where it was written in the same sort of very grim, dark, very gritty, very like maybe not nihilistic, but that very like bad shit happens to people and there's no mm-hmm. explanation for it. Same style. And she was originally intending this ending to be the same thing, like to be like, yeah. And then all this horrible shit happens. Cause that's, that's life, baby. 
And then in the aftermath of Trump being elected and the like rise of Nazis and just the slow collapse of all the all the lies we had told ourselves about yeah. us being all better our, than that. Yeah, all of our the collapse of all of our norms that we thought we were better than. Yeah. yeah. She she was like I she was talking to her agent. She was like, I can't, I can't. She was like, she realized she'd had trouble writing the book because the world was just in a different place than when she'd started the series. And she was like, I can't write this book with this ending like this because it it's killing me and it's gonna it's just soul crushing because the world's so soul crushing. We need hope. And so she ended yeah. up changing it to be a more hopeful ending. I don't know specifically what because I haven't finished the series yet. But like I know that she changed it to be more hopeful. Still, like she doesn't pull punches. That shit right. will it gets dark. But like she said that she changed it to more hopeful because we need stories about hope and people winning, basically. Yeah. So I entirely understand the mist being controversial for a lot of people. Totally get it. Also, probably doesn't hurt that I don't have kids. And so Yeah, for <laughs> sure. And I don't even know if that's a movie that I can go back and revisit. Because I know how it ends. And mm-hmm. like I know there are just parts of it that always get me and in like the wrong kind of like PTSD kind of way almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the when the church lady starts screaming and stuff is so similar to so many of the people that we you know grew up with. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I'm like true. I just don't like it. And I realized the other day, this is really funny. I realized when I was watching uh, I was rewatching the uh, Rob Zombie Halloween movies, and I realized I don't know. I haven't figured out a nice way to say this, but I'm just gonna have to say it. I guess I think I feel like Rob Zombie is very good at a specific aesthetic that I'm going to call, for lack of a better term, a white trash aesthetic, oh, a which is like, percent. which is like you know gritty drug dealer you know they always live in like a trailer with two dogs on chains and they don't feed them you know it's like yep and it's so specific and so visceral and for me it reminds me so much of not how not exactly how we grew up but there were so many people that we went to school with or we grew that, up like, in that we town were friends for with sure that exactly grew up in like those kinds of situations mm-hmm. and it hits so close to home that like I almost didn't finish rewatching the Halloween remake, like the first one that Rob Zombie made, because I was like, I just don't like this because it feels too close for comfort. Like, you know, like we'd known too many people that it was like, ah, just it's very well exactly done. And I understand Michael the aesthetic, down. but it's just it's too much for me. Like, it's too similar. And I guess that's part of, yeah, the. I don't know what it is about the mist. There's just something about it that I was like, this is too far. <laughs> I do not like this level of, yeah, well, doesn't matter anyway. Like I'm a fan of Kurt Vonnegut and he is a big, you know, he is a, it doesn't matter anyway, kind of author. <laughs> so it has to be a lot for me to be like, that's stupid. I feel like, but Oh man, it's kind of like the original ending to get out where I was like, that would have been a good ending and I would have understood it, but it's so dark that I'm like, yeah, uh, honestly, even the alternate ending of get out is not as dark as I expected it to go. Like the, when those lights came up and it was cops, I was like, mm-hmm. he's dead. Like it's yeah. not even like, like, cause the alternate ending of get out is he just goes to jail, but right. he's still alive. I was expecting yeah. him to be sh- shot, shot down right there. So the like, but yeah, I agree. And it was the same thing. Like, 
that was made. That movie was initially written during the Obama era, but then yeah. in the aftermath of that, you know, Jordan Peele was like, "We need some hope. We need like mm-hmm. people to to not want to kill themselves at the end of this movie yes. for yeah. being so bleak." So yeah, I I I get it. Anyway, that was The Mist, two thousand seven, directed oh, by yeah. Frank Darabont. So, are we ready for my number one pick? Yes. I don't know if you would have been able to guess it. Because I surprised myself when I wrote it down. It was one of the first ones that I wrote down. And it was obviously I, The Mangler starring Robert Englund. <laughs> <laughs> obviously. No, I was really surprised when I wrote it down because I was like, is that really my number one? Because, I, yeah, it was the first one I wrote down and I was like, eh, I'll just come back to it later. And I just kept coming back to it and being like, no, I feel like this is going to be my number one because I just really liked it. And that is Dolores Claiborne, 1995, directed by Taylor Hackford. This is fascinating. Um, I've never seen this movie. I yeah, you should. Um, I feel like you should because it's very good. Now, this the reason it's not my number one is because you know obviously I have seen the movie and I have also read the book. The book is related to Gerald's game. They're both uh you know centered around that same eclipse. Mm-hmm. That's really their only link. Although there is a portion in each book you know where they kind of like almost psychically link with what's her face being a little girl mm-hmm. and then. Dolores being woman who is married. Anyway, it's a fantastic story, and it's so. What's really... the gist of it? Like, what's the what's the the back of the book summary? Oh, it's 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 yeah. That's kind of hard to explain. So it's basically like the story of Dolores Claiborne, and when the book starts, she's giving a confessional because she's been accused of murdering um, Vera, the person that she takes care of, and she basically says no. I didn't murder Vera, but I'm technically guilty of murder. And then she goes basically like in this confessional, tells her entire life story from beginning to end to explain what the murder was she committed and like why and all that stuff. Um, It's starring Kathy Bates as Dolores Claiborne. So obviously um, she goes um, ham, obviously. Yeah, she's just really good at playing this like uh the thing that I loved about the book is Stephen King is very very good about characterizing, you know, people obviously, but I think he's very good at a specific style like this hard northeastern Maine old lady that's just like, mm. yeah, you know, like they just do whatever the fuck they need to do to yep. live, you know, it doesn't matter if they piss anybody off or not. And I love that aesthetic and I love her like nothing's gonna stop me you know i'm just gonna keep living my life attitude that she has throughout the whole thing um and it's you know kathy bates as dolores claiborne you've got jennifer jason lee as selena which is her daughter there's this that's also it's a huge very complicated multi-layer story because you've got her being accused of killing her housekeeper and that's a whole other thing she actually does commit a murder and then she's like trying to reconnect with her daughter through this big confessional thing because her daughter's also there. And then you've also got Christopher Plummer who plays detective John Mackey and he's like the detective driving the whole thing. And he's going crazy. Like, I know you did it and I'm going to catch you. Like the whole movie. He's just like, I know what you fucking did. And one of these days I'm going to land on you like a sack of potatoes or whatever. And it's a really good movie. It's also like a very tight movie because it's like an hour and a half. And of course, you know, the book is pretty short. But yeah, honestly, it's probably my number one because it's hard to pin down because like Roger Ebert called it a horror movie, but it's also been called like a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just weird because there's like 
some supernatural elements, some real life, you know, human struggle, some things that are pointed out like women's inequalities, you know, that Mm -hmm. are like, that's a glaring thing. And just like topics of around abuse and like just so many things wrapped up in a really good story with, you know, obviously powerhouse performances by Kathy Bates and Christopher Plummer and Jennifer Jason Lee. So, yeah, that's my number one. It's Dolores Claiborne. I, I'm very excited. I haven't read I haven't read Gerald's game either. Um, oh, I, I was too. going to read it, but it's Mike Flanagan and I couldn't wait. I couldn't not mm-hmm. watch it. So uh, I I definitely watched it and loved it and can't wait to read it. Uh, I have it. Uh, I have Gerald's game and Dolores Claiborne. Uh, it's weird how often King does. I, I thought it was just a one off thing, but he does it a lot where he writes books that are sort of weirdly linked. Yeah. But not directly. They're not like sequels. They're just sort of tangentially re- linked. Like mm-hmm. Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's Game both circling around the the eclipse. Yep. 112263 and it having that sort of overlap where the main character meets the kids just after they've beaten Pennywise. Uh, he wrote Desperation and The Regulators, which have the same characters, but flipped. Mm-hmm. Like desperations about uh family on vacation in the desert in like Nevada or something. That's the town name, isn't it? Desperation yeah. Nevada. Yeah. yeah, Desperation Nevada. And uh they get captured and pursued by this crazed cop that's possessed by this sort of ancient creature called Tack. And in the regulators, it takes place in a suburban town, and the same characters are there, but flipped. So like the kid David in Desperation is actually the dad in the regulators and his the person that was the dad in desperation is the son and the regulators is based on this tv show and mm-hmm. tack is instead of possessing people it's like manifesting these characters from the regulators the show as like they're like they like drive trucks around and are basically patrolling the neighborhood and like killing people sort of mm-hmm. like holding this whole neighborhood or this town hostage and uh, it's fascinating the way that he does so many books where he's like, yeah, what if these were linked? Just just a <laughs> little, though. Just kind of barely. Not quite so tangentially linked, but linked. Uh, my number one is Dr. Sleep by Mike Flanagan. Yeah. I was I was really tempted to put that on my list because it is one of my favorites. But I was like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be on his list if it's not his number one, because it's just very, very, it is very what be, good. I didn't want the whole thing to be Mike Flanagan, <laughs> but, but it, it so I that's think what, we did pretty good. We've only got two. No, I meant, I meant my list. Between us. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna have, uh, Gerald's game, but I was like, I like Dr. Sleep more than Gerald's game. So I'm going to, I'm going to mm-hmm. it like edged it out just a little. Otherwise Gerald's game would have been on there, but oh, you know, what's Dr. funny. I just so realized good. on my list. My number one and number two are, uh, my number one is Dolores Claiborne. My number two is Gerald's Game, like the two that are related. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my number one and two, the two stories that are related. <laughs> anyway. So Dr. Sleep is a sequel to The Shining. Uh, the book is a sequel to The Shining as well, following the young Danny, now grown up and following in his father's footsteps. He's an alcoholic. Uh, haunted by the things that his father did and the sort of bad way that his mom went out. Uh, not not that she she lived a happy life. She didn't like die tragically, but she like died of cancer and it was like a rough mm-hmm. death. And she had already suffered so much by his dad that like he, he went to drinking, does a lot of really shitty things. And then eventually when he reaches sort of rock bottom after waking up next to a dead woman, uh, yeah. he uh, it's literally like 
a dead woman that he had spent the night with and like they they had sex and got drugs and then she died from an overdose like laying next to him <laughs> it and gets he, even worse oh man she has a kid and he leaves the kids just there. leaves them there yeah like eh just leaves him there doesn't call anybody like doesn't call dhs or anything just like eh somebody will find him and that's his rock bottom so then he starts working at a hospital as a sort of candy striper and uh he still has a connection to the shining so he sort of becomes a sort of like a bridge to help people pass on and like make their passing more pleasant and and happy than it otherwise would have been and this is what i mean by like flanagan just gets king because you can't make a doctor sleep movie and have it be a, an, a proper adaptation of the book all the way through because there is no proper adaptation of the shining the book because the mm-hmm. stanley kubrick movie which is i love that movie right like it is legitimately yeah. a well, very terrifying movie yeah i actually was gonna put it on my list and then i was like eh. i mean i have read the book and then I was like, actually thought you might have it on your list as like one before Dr. Sleep, because like maybe you wanted them both. And then I was like, eh, I don't know. Anyway, I actually left it off because I assumed you would have it on there. And I was that's like, no, nah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go weird. I'm going to pick the mist. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, that's definitely one I wouldn't have picked. <laughs> anyway, But uh, the the shine, the Kubrick adaptation of The Shining, people have gone to death about this, but. It's a very cold movie. It's a very grim movie. It's very sort of nihilistic. There's not really any hope or happiness in it. Jack Nicholson's kind of crazy from the beginning. He's clearly like he has a lot of issues with his family and he's clearly sort of barely keeping his temper together. And so the snow is almost more of an excuse to to do bad things Mm -hmm. uh, instead of being driven to do anything. And uh, even like he even made changes like spoilers again it like dick halloran shows up and in the book saves them he shows up he he like danny calls for him he shows up he helps get danny and wendy out and they take the snowcat and they they go to like shelter and like uh they leave jack behind and jack sacrifices himself to stop the hotel like he has a moment of clarity where he realizes what he's done and decides to fuck over the hotel by killing it and so he goes downstairs and instead of releasing the pressure for the boiler room that he's supposed to have been doing all this time and that has been dangerously building up he just makes it worse so that it blows up and takes him with it and because that's not how the kubrick movie ends kubrick ends with you know jack not repenting jack just goes crazy tries to kill them and eventually gets lost in the hedge maze and and freezes to death so you can't make a, a proper doctor sleep adaptation because of that there's too much character that's informed by stuff that didn't happen in the existing movie and you can't just make an adaptation of doctor sleep everyone will think the shining and immediately go to the kubrick one so what does flanagan do makes a goddamn sequel to the Stanley Kubrick movie, but does it in such a way that restores the heart mm-hmm. of the story. It's just so well done. Yeah. Like the psychic vampire stuff is kind of goofy, especially in the book. Disagree. Um, I don't agree. I mean, well, actually, yes, in the book, it does tend to get a little goofy because uh, I remember in the book, the girl at one point abra i guess that was her name Mm -hmm. yeah at one point she like somehow predicted 9-11 and then there's like a scene of the vampires on the cliffs uh, 
outside the city being like, such sorrow, you know, like, uh, and I'm like, okay. Uh, And they obviously like, it doesn't happen in the movie, but I will say as somebody who has read, or you have too, uh, The Shining and Dr. Sleep, and then seen both of the movies. That is another case where the movie is better than the book because when I watch when I watch The Shining and Doctor Sleep back to back, just like when I read The Shining and Doctor Sleep back to back, I was way more satisfied from the journey from Kubrick to Flanagan than Mm -hmm. I was with Stephen King's original material, just because of there was some heart, but you know, in the original, but also like I don't know, it was. It was good. It was just like the the movie brought it to another level because yep. not only does it kind of restore that, but it also has all of these Easter eggs and all these like callbacks to the original Shining. So many very iconic moments from the Shining, obviously, you know, like the, the elevator of blood and then that whole stairway scene, which is mimicked between mm-hmm. uh, him and that vampire lady, which him I and Rose love. Yes. It's even yes, yes. it's even shot the same, like with the same like angles and, you know, like the uh, it's just really, really good. And like, you know, it's, it's the same thing. Like, I, I think at the ending of Dr. Sleep, the movie, that's when he like takes the hotel with him like burns it down or whatever so danny goes into the boiler room i think that they started up the boiler room to to like power to basically like power the hotel on yeah and he went so in the movie he's chasing abra the same way that jack chased danny Mm -hmm. and he's like about to kill her and then she says i know something that you don't danny wouldn't forget about the boiler room or something and he was like what and then like ran down to the boiler room and yeah. uh, that's where he ultimately he ultimately dies the death that Jack should have had in The Shining. Mm-hmm. But like even the scene like where he like they both have that that scene of like going into the bar and being tempted by alcohol mm-hmm. and the bartender being Jack, but very subtly so. Like mm-hmm. I mean not not terribly subtly. Like we know as soon as we see the hair and and the outfit, we know who it is. Even though it's not right. Jack Nicholson, we know who that is. Mm-hmm. And like and also casting people who are eerily similar to the people that they're mimicking like henry thomas doesn't look terribly like jack nicholson but with the right makeup and stuff he looked like jack nicholson the 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 guy they cast to play dick halloran looked very similar to scatman carruthers alex esso who is a a flanagan frequent collaborator now played wendy fucking perfectly yeah oh she's so good i love it so much and the, the director's cut is fantastic. Long as hell. It's like three hours long, but it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I need to watch the director's cut because I've only ever seen the theatrical one. And even just the theatrical one, I was like, this is so good. I can't imagine director's cut. I'm sure I'll love it just as much. The blending of the sets, by the way, because Flanagan recreates the Overlook as it looked in the, the Kubrick movie. And the way that he's able to do it, he like practically recreated a lot even getting carpet that was Mm -hmm. the same as the original movie but then there's other things that are like recreated in clever ways that like blend like the the gold room that he goes into where the bar is that's Mm -hmm. actually cgi that back splash but it looks exactly the same the the uh when rose the hat comes inside of the hotel and she looks to her right and the elevator doors open and the blood pours in that was actually mm-hmm. a CGI recreation of that shot yeah. because they couldn't wouldn't be yeah, able to get the blood to flow exactly the same way. Yeah, because the first time it was done, it was practical and it was a crapshoot. Like every time they opened the doors, yeah. it was 
it because fl- that's how liquid works. You know? <laughs> it's always different. <laughs> but like not just that though, but like part of the reason they did it CGI wasn't just to recreate it in CGI, but specifically they recreated it from a higher perspective because yeah. Rose is taller than Danny. Yeah, than Danny, Danny was a kid. Yeah. And so the shot is recreated from a taller person's perspective. Just like, ah, yeah, it's those kind of little things that make you go, this person knows how to direct. Or at least they know, you know, a lot of the little things that go into a movie that Mm -hmm. make movie lovers go, ooh, that's a good detail. Because I don't know, there's always like some movies, you know, that people have watched where some little thing will take you out of it. Like, oh, you know, I can't believe that. They looked over that or whatever. Yeah. You know? But yeah, that makes me think of kind of like, uh, what was it? Knives Out, where Ryan Johnson starts creating these like lighting apparatuses that look like windows so that the reflections of people's glasses look like the windows, but mm-hmm. they're also still using set lighting. And so, yeah, that's that's crazy. It's like, that kind of detail that like makes me really respect a filmmaker because damn. Also, fun fact, the Oculus mirror appears in all of Mike Flanagan's movies. And shows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think you... Uh, yeah, I remember you telling me that. In Doctor Sleep, the Oculus Mirror is in the Stanley somewhere. I don't remember where specifically, it but perfectly. it's... perfectly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, in Gerald's game, it's actually the headboard. Oh. Uh, the Lasser Glass is what it's called. I have a few honorable mentions that I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on them. I just wanted to toss them out. Some of them you've talked about because they weren't on my list, like Carrie and children of the corn gerald's game i i love the dark half uh directed by george romero actually uh secret window from 2004 uh with johnny depp and um john Turturro, silver bullet yeah i was surprised that did not make it on your list because when you added the qualifier of like i'm lock i'm i'm talking about favorites not actual best adaptations i was like yeah i figured (laughs) i figured you were gonna put silver bullet on there because i was like i mean i think the movie's fun in a somehow this movie got made (laughs) kind of way i only had uh well i had a couple that i guess were honorable mentions i had it the reason it was listed was because I didn't differentiate between chapter one or chapter two. Like when I wrote down it, I was considering both movies together versus the one book. And I was like, I feel like even both movies together, I still really like it. I think it's a very, very good adaptation of the book. But just compared to the other ones on the list, I was like, I just don't like it as much. And because I don't feel like separating them, I wanted to keep them together because in, I don't know. It was like yeah. one book, one movie in my head. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the other, another one that I had listed was Salem's Lot from the seven, uh, the miniseries, like the CBS mm. miniseries. Um, I had that listed because uh, that was actually, I think the first Stephen King book that I read was Salem's Lot. And I loved that book. And so I watched the adaptation and I do think the seventies adaptation is a very good adaptation. Um, it's, it's works really well. And the fact that I'm pretty sure, isn't that directed by Toby Hooper? Uh, yes, it is. And it's it's just crazy that that was broadcast on CBS cable television in the 70s. And some of the stuff in there is like, how did this get on TV? Yeah. It's because it was the 70s. Even I remember just having nightmares from the cover art, like with the scary mm-hmm. you know, vampire thing. And ugh, freaked me out. And then even as an adult, that scene, you know, where the, he's like, Billy, come out and play. You know, mm-hmm. like very well done. Just as creepy as it is in the book. So yeah, 
it was going to be on my list, but I was like, I don't know. I like a lot of these other ones better. So because it is a little bloated. The thing that kept some of the some of those off of my list was because they were so long. Like, yeah, the it miniseries, besides partially just being kind of dorky, uh, yeah. it's so long. The stand is so long. Mm. Rose Red, although not an adaptation, is so long. Yeah. Uh, that like I just was like, I don't know. Uh, there there are movies I watch more often because they're shorter and I can yeah. sit down and watch them. And yeah, I do feel like while the Salem's Lot, yeah, the miniseries is a pretty faithful adaptation. There are some times where you're like, it's almost too faithful. Like it's too slow. You yeah. know, like <laughs> that's that that was part of the reason why I left it off. But anyway, yeah, I am pretty proud of the the 10 movies that we came up between us. Um, yeah. Why don't you run yeah. down your list really quick? Um, just oh, sure. just really quickly, like reiterating what they are. Reiterating the titles. Oh, sure. Yeah. So my number five was. Carrie from 1976. Uh, number four is Misery, 1990. Number three is Children of the Corn from 1984. Number two is Gerald's Game from 2017. And number one is Dolores Claiborne from 1995. Mine is number five, The Dead Zone from 1983 by David Cronenberg. Number four, It Chapter One from 2017 by Andy Muschietti. Number three, 1408 from 2007, uh, directed by Mikhail Hafström. Uh, number two, The Mist from 2007, directed by Frank Darabont. And number one, Dr. Sleep from 2019, directed by our friend and yours, Mike Flanagan, the best human. Yes. Well, you know, that's our that's our top five Stephen King adaptations. That's our bonus episode. That's our bonus episode. That's all you get until our next bonus episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Take us out, Brandon. Uh, yeah. You can follow us on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls. Email us at eerie.earfuls at gmail.com and visit us on the web at eerieearfuls, all one word, dot com. You can subscribe to us on Google Play, iTunes, and many other podcast providers. I just had us added to Amazon, for example. Um, give us a review. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know how we're doing. Our theme music is Baba Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Find more music at Incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Eerie Earfuls. I think this machine just caught... Fuck me. Did it. Already. <laughs> Already. Good. Cool. Good. All right.